So then. If you awaken from this illusion. Persistence of vision. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Persistence of Vision podcast. The podcast that makes you wonder why. Wonder why, how, and indeed how and why. I like that. Wonder why. Why so much, maybe? Why so much, for example. Why so much? Why do I bring up why so much? Why do I say that? Why do I repeat that every podcast? It's because it's the title of my book. Um, And if you go to our website, which is pov-publishing.com, you can see links to my book, Why So Much, by Lance Myers. You can see a link to LB's book, The Goddamn Fool. What else? You can see a ton of stuff there. Those are the most important things that's by right, far. That's right. But there's, there's, a lot of great, there's a lot of great writing. There's a lot of great cartoons. Uh, and, of course, there's the entire archive of these wonderful podcasts where we talk about books and where we inspire conversations. Conversation. And today we have a conversation with Robert Ferris. Hooray! Hey! Hi, Robert. It's so good to be here. And, okay, so when we asked you to uh, do the podcast, what book did you choose? I chose... Something Wicked This Way Comes by Ray Bradbury. Why didn't you tell us? We, we could have read it. <laughs> I'm joking, of course. Uh, tell us, uh, Robert, why, why this book? It stands out in my early years of reading. Um, I remember in eighth grade reading this at the same time of several of my friends and I'd done a, I was one of those kids who was a reader, so I'd read a lot at that point. Mm-hmm. But this book had me so engaged, so captivated, that I raced through it to a degree that I couldn't remember. And I also, because I had friends reading it, we would call each other up <laughs> and go, oh my God, have you gotten to this part? Oh, oh that's my great. God, and we would share this stuff. What age? Uh, 13, which figures in because that's the age of the two protagonists. So I think because Bradbury paints such a vivid picture of being at that hinge point of childhood and adulthood, and there's so much longing on the kid's part Mm. to be older, Mm -hmm. um, that I felt like that captured where I was to a degree that I don't think, you know, most of the books I had read, adventure books, science fiction books, fantasy books, they all had adult protagonists. Mm. And I read a lot of comic books, so I read, you know, Batman and Robin and things like that. But I tended to feel more like they were the adults' stories rather Mm. than the kids' stories. And this, I don't know, it just stood out. And Bradbury's writing to me is like, Nobody else's. I mean, yes. it was at that point in my life, I hadn't read anybody like him. And after a while, as I became more of a writer, and I wondered where, where my style had come from, where, what had influenced me, I think Bradbury may have been the first really influential figure as a writer that you know, gave me the freedom to write in a certain way. I, I, I won't say I'm anywhere in his league, but he but has such... But you won't such, say you're not. Well, <laughs> he has such a, uh, an extravagant quality to mm-hmm. his writing. He's so vivid and so he just doesn't... He doesn't worry about that 
Hemingway-esque brevity. No. He'll take an idea and he'll he'll embroider it until sometimes you're begging him to stop. <laughs> but it, I think it serves this book so well. And um, so I felt like it was a really... Uh, there was just sort of a... I won't say it's the only book I've had this experience with, but it was definitely a book where there was sort of a before in my life and an after in my life. Wow. Well, that being said about his style, I, w- I wouldn't necessarily say it's it's a very dense, like difficult style, though. No, no. Right. And he, and boy, no, does he know how to plot. In a way. Yeah. Folks. Yeah. Yes. Right. And the fact that he has written so often about small towns, yeah. as he does in this book, I think is he's very relatable. Uh, right. And he makes sure that whatever is going on with his protagonists, it's something that you can relate to. Mm. Well, speaking of protagonists, you know, we've said your name, Robert Ferris, and we, you've mentioned that you're a writer, but who, who are you? Who are you, Robert <laughs> Ferris? I'm a man of mystery. Yeah, I have the power to cloud men's minds. <laughs> uh, I am the arts editor for the Austin Chronicle. Uh, I started writing theater reviews for the Chronicle way, way back in the 80s when the paper was still very young. Uh, I kept with it because I enjoyed it. And then uh, about 25 years ago, uh, Nick and Lewis, who started the paper, gave me the opportunity to be the arts editor. And I've been at the Chronicle ever since. Fantastic. And this book, uh, we've been talking about it. What's it about? So it is set in a small town. I don't know that the date is ever specified, but it's certainly 1920s-ish. So there's a bit of a nostalgic quality to it. I Mm -hmm. wanna say that Bradbury might've been writing about his own childhood, but in in a small Midwestern town, and there are two boys, best friends, and they do everything together. They're 13 years old. They have those sort of 13-year-old boy adventures. And then one night, this mysterious carnival shows up in town. It's very mysterious, and the boys immediately sense there's something strange and not right about it. And so they begin sort of their secret Encyclopedia Brown-type investigation of what's going on here and they see dark magic I mm-hmm. mean really dark magic that plays on the desires of people in the town and they see things that that are horrible you know that that people in the town are transformed in horrible ways and then they begin to want to warn people um, and then they also worry that the carnival has figured out who they are and what they're doing and want to stop them. Yes. And they so face that dilemma that children who know about something bad going on face where they are very concerned about whether yeah. anyone's going to take them seriously. Right. Yeah, so uh, Stranger Things, right? Yeah, um, yeah. You know, uh, what else? Um, well, I mean, there's the sense this... There has been a lot of this sort of thing, where it's like the, the children are the protagonist, yeah. they, they are, yeah. they, they're in on something. It, for example. Yeah. So I was trying to think, what came before this that would have been in that vein? 
Is this is this one of the like beginnings of oh, this? Oh boy, like, that's a good question. I hadn't really thought about. You know, that. what comes to mind for me is uh, Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn. Sure, sure, sure. Not the horror aspect, of course, but the extremely independent and imaginative boys who right. seem to do a lot of stuff that most of us, when we were kids, <laughs> didn't manage to pull off. Right, right. Like running away from home and going across the country. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, the supernatural element, though, of being like, uh, you know, and I think, like you mentioned, it got you, it hooked you because it's that, it, it gives the child the sort of special position of like being in the know. Yes. Being the one that's, I know something that no one else does. I'm faced with the challenge of taking it on myself because I'm the only one, right? That right. Kind of thing. But it gives you a sense of responsibility if you're growing up. If you're yes. Like, I'm, the, I'm the hero, right? Right. Right. So were you the Jim or the Will of the... <laughs> of oh, the you know, I think I was very much the Will, who is the... Uh, I've always identified with the sort of stalwart, straight arrow characters. Mm-hmm. That's been more my life than anything else. Um, and, you know, the thing about Jim, and man, does Bradbury hit the nose with these names. Jim Nightshade. Right. Yes. yes. You know, and the the evil carnival owner is Mr. Dark. It's like, I'm not going to leave any room for doubt. But Jim is the one who is, feels more tempted to the dark side. Yes. Um, And that just, I don't know. I've never felt like I have the courage or roguishness or whatever (laughs) it takes. I was always Tom, not Huck. Mm -hmm. Okay. you know, I identified with Luke, not Han. <laughs> you know, it's just, you know, whenever there's that dichotomy of, of the heroes, yeah. I always go with, you know, I go with Superman over Batman. I see. You know, those I sorts see. of sure, things. Sure, sure, sure. So I was very much Will and desperately wanting to do the right thing. Yeah. Desperately wanting to save his friend who he sees getting tempted to do the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. And the wrong thing in this case, or... Just the temptation, I guess, uh, I should say, is, uh, I mean, like you said, they, it, this really also taps into the idea of, like, uh, the children on the verge of, of becoming adults and really wanting that transformation. Right. Um, there's a lot of, like, uh, themes of, like, innocence or coming of age or whatever it is. And Jim really wants that, right? He wants to be older. Yeah. Um, so. Uh, and there is a way in the carnival yes. that that can happen. Right. Yeah. So, um I forget where I was going with that, but uh, let's touch on the themes. So the themes are um, temptation to... Yeah, uh, desire and the danger of giving in to one's desire is a big thing. Well, certainly it's not an accident that the title of the book, Something Wicked This Way Comes, comes from the witches in Macbeth. Right, yeah. Who, of course provide Macbeth the inspiration for his uh, fiendish activities for the rest of the play. Right. And who do so simply by telling him the truth, interestingly. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, one wonders if those witches hadn't been there how willing Macbeth would have been (laughs) to go down that road. Yeah. But, uh, you know, and would... Similarly, with the, with if the carnival had never come to that town, would 
Jim have been tempted to do something in, in quite the same way. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, other themes. Um, it's, you know, I, th I, I sense a lot of regret mm. in the book. Um, you know, there is a, there's a degree to which people who have given in to the carnival are expressing regret. Mm. But I always, especially on rereading it, I find the character of Jim's father, I, I'm sorry, Will's father, who is the only real adult who has an active role mm -hmm. in the story. He's a father who is older than average. And even though he's not, he's not what I consider that old now that I'm, you know, through middle <laughs> age, uh, he's, he's so worried about it. Mm -hmm. You know, he feels like he can't be a real dad to his son because he's older than all of the other dads would be. And he hasn't really done anything with his life. He's a custodian for the town library. And, uh, I mean, he ends up being part of the key to sending the carnival away, uh, or maybe the key. But his regret at the way he's lived with life is uh, really informs the novel, probably to a degree I didn't really recognize mm. as a 13-year-old myself. <laughs> yeah. Sure. Well, certainly time has got to be a theme yes. to the novel. It's not, uh, it's not only Jim who is dissatisfied with his age, being 13 years old. Right. Uh, there's a lot of people in the book who are unhappy with their ages, um, among other things. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it, it also ties into a sense of community, I think, too, or identifying with other people your age or that sort of thing. Because I, isn't there like a, um, a thing about how if, if you artificially age, you're sort of out of touch with the rest of, you know, so if, if you're 13 and you age, you know, through this magic to be in your 40s, right. you're still going to be a 13-year-old in a 40s sort of context. Right. right, but then there's also, yeah, there's also that thing of um, being older than everyone around. If you stay in that community as a 40-year-old, uh, you are suddenly so much older than your peers. And yes. who is going to be able to relate to you? Right. How would Will relate to Jim still being 13 if mm -hmm. Jim is 40? Right. Yeah. So yeah, it's it's uh, yeah, that's a combination of what, how do time, how does time factor into community, mm -hmm. and how does community respond? Absolutely. Definitely, and the community. Oh, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, uh, well, I was going to move on to a different topic. Actually, uh, the idea of um, okay, so a lot of these books when we discuss them, I always sort of try to look for the context of like when it was written. Okay, so this is what, 62, right? Yeah, the book 62. was 62. Okay. So is there anything about these themes that we've been discussing that uh, reflects like the sort of culture that he was writing in at the time? Is there any, were there any political, you know, is there a political stage for this? Sure. Or a cultural stage for this that might have influenced, okay, I'm going to write a book about these particular things? Yeah. That yeah. you can think of? I, I, I think in part of it, it would have been um, Bradbury being of an age to have seen what the small town was. Uh -huh. 
uh, what the, the kind of community that informed an American small town pass away to an extent and a lot of what we never talked about in small towns earlier in the 20th century were suddenly being ripped open and exposed mm. through another book of the 60s, Peyton Place, which okay. is, you know, sure. a big soap opera. But we're also seeing the civil rights movement where, oh, are there any black people in yeah. in this small town? Yeah. Not that we know <laughs> of. Right. Um, and yet the civil rights movement is saying we're not going to go unseen anymore and we're not going to... Right. We're not going to be invisible, and what's more, we are going to stand up for what is rightfully ours. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think there is a lot, in, just in terms of community. Right, sure. There's a lot of that there. I mean, the, the comparison, you know, if Peyton Place is about anything, you know, it's about desire. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's also a lot of sense of what are these small town lives and are they, uh, are there darker things that have always inhabited these mm. small towns right. that, uh, again, weren't talked about in, in the, the previous literature and, of course, Hollywood and television. Uh, so I think it's kind of stepping on and moving into the times in that way. Right. Although I have no idea if Bradbury was consciously responding to that or of course. not. Yeah. Well, they and were, he, he would have been, I'm stepping on, <laughs> I was going to say, I mean, how, how old was he when he wrote this? Do we, do you know what? I think he was. He's been in his 40s, right? Yeah, I think he was in his late 30s, early 40s. Okay. I was just going to say that the, uh, there were so many respects in which this early 60s, late 50s, early 60s period was a time of, Innocence lost. Yeah, exactly. And and the, the sense, as you were saying, that the uh, innocence maybe never had been there. Right. You know, so many books like uh, Babbitt and uh, and the, the the what is it? The concept of the organizational man. You know, a lot of critiques. Obviously, the increasing popularity of Freudian psychology. Mm -hmm. The idea of things being buried under the surface that are more sinister than what we pretend them to be. And, uh, and of course, the nuclear age. Yes. You know, World War II having come back. And, and you, as you were saying, the, the disappearance of the small town as a, as a primary uh, social unit in the country as the country became increasingly urbanized and suburbanized. So we see a lot of, uh, a lot of, a lot of that sense that there's something sinister, yeah. something wicked coming. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, fantastic. So are, you said that, uh, uh, I mean, you mentioned some of his other works. Are you a, a Bradbury fan through and through? Do you like well, all of his work? Yeah. I mean, that was the interesting thing. Um, I still vividly remember the junior high library, uh, spending a lot of time in there. And I think the first book I read was, I mean, so many of them were short story collections. Mm -hmm. So the first book I remember checking out was R is for Rocket. Mm -hmm. And it opens with one of Bradbury's most famous short stories, A Sound of Thunder, where the two guys go back in time to hunt dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. And they're warned, don't stray off this path. 
things could happen. And of course, one guy like puts one foot off the path and crushes a butterfly, and they come back to the present, and you know everything's changed, yeah. and it's a radically different um, society and world. So I mean, you know, that's a wonderfully captivating story mm -hmm. for a seventh grader yeah, to read. Sure. Um, and then I just started going through others of the collection. The Illustrated Man was actually required reading for mm -hmm. our ninth grade English classes. But I want to say Something Wicked was either the second or third book of his I read. I didn't go to necessarily the more famous ones like Fahrenheit 451 or um, The Martian Chronicles. Uh, this was one of the ones that I picked instead. And like I said, it was uh, it was like suddenly gunning my reading ability to 120 mm. miles an hour. Mm -hmm. And I want to point uh, one other anecdote I'll throw in was I thought about who my friends were uh, back during that period, and I couldn't recall who else might have been reading it at the time, see if this was just some phantom memory that I was confusing with something else that happened. So I have one friend from that period on Facebook, and he lives in Seattle, so we don't communicate very often. But I wrote him, and uh, he didn't remember the same uh, instances, but he did remember reading it about the same time. Wow. And in ninth grade, he had to do, or maybe it was eighth grade, he had to do some sort of English paper, and he chose that to do a paper on, and like got some kind of flack from his teacher. Really? <laughs> but, uh, but, he, but he basically closed by saying, I remember that book being very influential on me too. Oh, that's great. So I just love that after this gulf of time, yeah. where now we're both older than... Will's dad, <laughs> um, that suddenly we can still recall something that vividly from sure. our early teens. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So are there other uh, writers? I mean, I've, would you call him, like I so said, Bradbury, what kind of genre? Like what Would you say sci-fi? Uh, I, I always considered him more of a fantasy novelist, mm -hmm. you know, just because he he doesn't lean into the science very much yeah. and in fact there are whole stories and books that don't deal with any science at all yeah they're more likely to be twilight zone we're not going to bother to twilight explain zone. I was this mention stuff. Twilight yeah. Zone. sure yeah yeah so uh yeah that's that's the the book Although for, fahrenheit in. 451 is, is in some ways is kind of a classic sci-fi book right i mean it's not and not that it's about science, but it's about a, uh, a technological type of shift that changes the world. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's, it's more political. I've always thought of it as sci-fi, but I might be, might be wrong. I, I've never actually read four, Fahrenheit 451. Oh, yeah, yeah I, I, I think to greater and lesser degrees, he leans into science some, but it's never to the degree that, say, Isaac Asimov does. Sure. And, you know, if you start trying to look for something lyrical in Asimov's character, good luck. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, I, I, you know, and even more than that, I think he's a 
a humanist, I guess. Mm -hmm. You know, he's he's just somebody who is more interested in human behavior um, and whatever is going on in his books. I mean, the short stories often have that kind of O. Henry twist. Mm-hmm. Um, but more often than not, as in this book, I think he's as interested in why humans do what they do mm. and how they respond to certain stimuli than he is in just concocting a great plot, which he knows how to do and right. does extremely well. But if you take all of the character stuff out of this book, I don't think it would be a novel. I think, mm, you know, right. he might be able to get, well, yeah, or, or I mean, you, just the plot of it, you could get a good short story out mm-hmm, of. Mm-hmm. But I think it's more, it's there because he really has great characters and great things to explore about them. Yeah. Well, what would you uh, do us the honor of reading to us a little bit from Oh, it? sure. Um, there is, I was trying to think of one, there's one section. Oh, uh, while I'm looking for it, I'll, uh, I'll tell you one other thing about, uh, the difference in reading it at my age now and reading it, um, when I was in seventh grade and that is, I talked about racing through it at 120 miles per hour. Well, now because I have so much more of an appreciation of uh, Bradbury as a as a prose stylist, mm-hmm. and I found myself starting to get into that. Oh, oh yeah, I forgot about this. Oh, oh, what happens next? And then I realized. I'm ruining some of the enjoyment mm. I was starting to get from his writing style. Yeah. And I started mouthing, I started slowing myself down <laughs> to literally mouth the, the text out loud. And it was, as LB says, poetry. Mm-hmm. And like poetry, you don't want to race through a poem. You want to... Each word is important, savor. and you want to yeah. savor the language. Yeah, yeah I'm a huge Steinbeck fan, uh, and I've read that Bradbury was too, and I can definitely see the influence there. And I feel the same way, where a lot of times, uh, the, you know, like you mentioned, the folksiness of, of the tales that he's telling and the, and the characters he's exploring are all very quaint and very engaging and, and very friendly and likable. Um, but then you'll you'll come across the turn of a phrase that just really gets you. Okay, so Will and Jim meet this figure called the witch. There are so many strange figures in this carnival. There's a dwarf that they realize used to be somebody that they met, a lightning rod salesman who, for whatever desire he had, was crushed into a dwarf. There is a figure that enters the town encased in like ice, mm-hmm. called the most beautiful woman in the world. Um, there's Mr. Electrico. 
They're just all these wonderful, strange characters. Uh, but there is this witch, uh, and she's really one of the more bizarre and frightening characters. And eventually, at one point, Will has a, a showdown with her on the roof of a house. But this is one of the early appearances. For the witch, though peculiar wax, was peculiarly alive. Blind, yes, but she thrust down rust-splotched fingers, which petted, stroked the sluices of air, which cut and splayed the wind, peeled layers of space, blinded stars, which hovered and danced, then fixed and pointed, as did her nose. And the boys knew even more. They knew that she was blind, but special blind. She could dip down her hands to feel the bumps of the world, touch house roofs, probe attic bins, reap dust, examine drafts that blew through halls and souls that blew through people, drafts vented from bellows to thump through people, drafts from wrists to pound temples to pulse throat and back to bellows again. Just as they felt that balloon sift down like an autumn rain, so she could feel their souls disinhabit, re-inhabit their tremulous nostrils. Each soul a vast warm fingerprint felt different. She could roll it in her hand like clay, smelt different. Will could hear her snuffing his life away, tasted different. She savored them with her raw gummed mouth, her puff at her tongue, sounded different. She stuffed their souls in one ear, tissued them out the other. Her hands played down the air, one for Will, one for Jim. Nice. So strong. And she's in a hot air balloon Mm -hmm. that floats over the town. And it's, you know, that shadow of that balloon passes over you and you have stepped into an icebox. So crazy. And are they like, uh, is that the balloon that they they pop with a bow and arrow, right? And then they have like dream of like burying it in some weird coffin or something? Yeah, yeah. That's the, and and that is where uh, Will, Jim is already worried about Will. And Jim ends up going out after her alone, and he is on the roof of this house when he feels the balloon, sees it coming down, and she's after him, and she knows he's after him. And he has this little bow and arrow, which ultimately he shoots at the balloon and pops it. And, I, you know, it's the first sense that, oh, we have some way to stand against these yeah. massively evil characters. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it reminded me, the whole book reminded me, but it's this passage, obviously, of The Balloon Man, that poem. Mm. I think it's E.E. E. Cummings. Yes. Uh, which I also read around the same time that you're talking about, eighth grade. And that that's a very creepy, satanic kind of balloon man in that story yeah. also, that, that poem. But, uh, yeah, marvelous reading. Excellent. Thank you. Beautiful. Beautiful. Well... Do you, well, do you hear anything? Uh, well, the sky seems to be getting darker. <laughs> uh, just, I feel a chill, like I'm in an icebox. Distant rumbling. Distant rumbling, and that can only mean the approach of something wicked. The lightning <laughs> round. The lightning round it is.
Let me pull up my notes. I should know this by heart, but I just want to make sure. Okay. Are you ready, Robert? I am prepared. Okay. <laughs> I love it. All right. Here we go. First question. Uh, tell us about the first time you fell in love with a book. That's, that's one of the harder ones. You know, like I said, I've been reading. I was reading since I was very, very small. Uh, you know, I, I, I think I really began to fall in love with books around the same period. It was in junior high. Like I said, I remember that library so vividly. And uh, it was a time when I haunted the shelves and picked up so many books by authors that I hadn't read before that. Um, Jules Verne, Around the World in 80 Days, uh, was one. Bradbury's Ars for Rocket is another. Uh, Melville's Moby Dick, I mm. read in that period. I don't wow. know why or how. <laughs> Not required reading. Uh, Travels with Charlie by Steinbeck. A lot of discovery during that period. I, I wonder, here's, a, here's an odd choice. that one A book that I haven't looked at in years. But I think I felt a lot of love, an unusual amount of love for the Phantom Tollbooth. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Uh, yeah, it was just one of those crazy quest books that felt more relatable than Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, but kind of had the same vibe. Yeah. It was a little yellow submarine-ish, yeah. you know, yeah. and, uh, and fun and funny, and the wordplay was something that mattered to me. So... Uh, yeah, let's go with Phantom Tollbooth. Like it. I love I like it. That's it. great. Okay. Has a book ever changed your mind? Yeah, you know, this is a question I I was trying to come up with a great answer for, and I don't know that I do. I've had many books blow my mind, mm-hmm. you know, and many <laughs> books that open my mind. I don't know. I don't know about changing my mind. Um Although, you know, one of the more fascinating Open My Mind books uh, may have been one I've read as an adult uh, called God, A Biography, which won the Mm -hmm. Pulitzer Prize in the mid-'90s. And the whole idea was uh, this was a literary critic rather than a theologian, or or he walked both lines. And his idea was to look at the Old Testament as a literary document and to analyze the character of God mm-hmm. the way we analyze famous characters in novels. And so he goes through all of the Old Testament and looks at it as a single narrative. And I just never read anything like that. And I, I loved it so much. He came out with a sequel um, called Christ, a crisis in the life of God, where the same thing, he did the same thing with the New Testament. And I had the same experience, maybe even more profound. I reread that book mm. last year. So, uh, yeah, it just, it made me, I've been a lifelong churchgoer. My family's Methodist, and I was in the church all my life. But that made me think about you know, what it means to be in the Christian church and to have that faith. Um, 
than I think anything else I've written. Wow. Read. Fantastic. Okay, well, here's the big brother, brother to that question. Has a book ever changed your life? You know, in terms of being a writer and the kind of writer that I've been, I th one book I would put in that category is Tom Wolfe's The Right Stuff. Mm. It was, I read it when it came out. It was college, and I was beginning to realize I had more talent writing than I thought I did. Mm. <laughs> and I was taking, uh, I took a couple of American Studies class with a guy named David Gaines, who has been teaching at Southwestern now for a long time. But at that time, he was in UT, and uh, he was one of those great, you feel like he's almost not that much older than you mm, are, yeah. and it's very free and open discussions. And the books I, the, the courses I took really looked at very contemporary books. And so he was interested in talking about Wolf, and I wrote a couple of papers uh, about his books, and I don't know if I wrote read the right stuff before then, but it was the most vivid Wolf I had read since then. And at one point in his class, I wrote a paper about Tom Wolfe in the style uh -huh. of Tom Wolfe. <laughs> and the right stuff was, I think, maybe the, the book that convinced me. I can be a writer and here's a piece of here here's a here's a road I can go mm -hmm. down in terms of how to write or a, a way of writing that feels right to me. But don't you think Tom Wolfe is, is he, he reminds me of R. Crumb in that when I look at R. Crumb's cartoons, even though they're way better than anything I could do, they make me want to draw. They he's like showing you his work as yeah. it were. You know, you can yeah. see the method and you can picture yourself doing it with your own pen and that's how I feel about Tom Wolfe. He, he, he makes you feel like you can write, even though he's blowing you away with right. how great he is. But at the same time, in a way that other, another writer might make you think, God, I, I wouldn't bother trying to write, uh, he makes you want to write. Yeah. Punk rock kind of. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's right. Yeah. That, Very much. Punk rock appeal. Well, that's a great, great answer. Thank you. Um, has a book ever made you cry? You know, I don't remember the exact experience of reading it. I would be very surprised if I did not cry reading Charlotte's Web mm. as a kid the first time. <laughs> Got to be made of stone <laughs> not to cry then. But uh, more vividly, I think there are, there is an adult, it's not a whole book because it's just a collection of essays, but there is an essay that E.B. White wrote mm. called The Ring of Time. And I've gone back to it multiple times. I used to, ha I had a friend who started hosting reading parties. Uh, he, I also met him through that same David Gaines American Studies class. But he would host reading parties where we all brought stuff and we went around the circle and read them out loud. It was great fun. And then at some point my wife and I started hosting them. Uh, and I would always read this essay, and I could never get through it without tears. Wow. It's a beautiful wow. thing. He, he describes walking around a circus, uh, uh, watching a circus rehearse, and he sees this young girl 
uh, riding the horse and jumping on the back of a horse in the circle and somehow circling around. And he sees the an older woman training her. Uh, and something about making that circle makes him think about time and the two of them and and where they're going in life. And it just... It's gorgeous and so feeling, and it touches something deep in me. Also, sounds like something out of something wicked this way comes. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, I think that I think we've got a theme going yeah, here. Yeah, seriously. Right. Okay. Well, I think you're, uh, you've already answered this uh, a few times, but I'm going to ask it again. Uh, name a book you've read more than once. Frankenstein. Aha! Mm. Wow. This is actually uh, maybe the book I've read the most times, which isn't that many. But it's a book that I have read at multiple points in my life, and it never loses its fascination for me. Got a question for you, sir. Just read it myself for the first time. Listen to the audiobook. I, I count that as reading. Uh, <laughs> true or false, the monster is not actually, necessarily at least, uh, a revivified corpse or collection of corpses sewn together? Ooh. Uh, could be. I, although, even though the book doesn't talk about that to the extent that the movies always do, I seem to remember lots of talk about, you know, the size of the body parts being important to bring it back. What what spring? What I just remember a specific thing when he was first creating the monster, suggesting to me that he was creating something out of nothing. Let's let's talk and about creature. Let's. let's <laughs> well, he's called the monster in the book, isn't he? No, I think he's always referred to as the oh, creature. My mistake. Well, uh, the creature. Uh, he said something early on that made me think, "Oh, is is he in fact just creating something out of nothing, or out of like mm. chemicals or something?" And uh, so I, then, I after that, I was listening very carefully through the whole thing to see if there was any indication. Uh, for example, when he makes the bride, uh, that there is in fact some grave digging going on, you know, which mm. of course grave digging is a natural thing for that time sure. period. But, um, and I didn't hear anything. And I was thinking, did they just come up with that for the movie? And uh, I don't know. It's entirely possible. The, you know, the whole business of how the monster, the creatures, how the creatures brought to life and how that happens with the quote unquote bride, uh, she keeps pretty vague. Mm -hmm. um, she, Shelley is much more interested in, you know, what the the creature experiences and the rejection mm -hmm. it experiences once it is alive. Yes, uh, and its sense of isolation and um, and rejection. Quotes Dante, for God's sake. Mm -hmm. Isn't yeah, it funny yeah. how some of these uh, classics get sort of remolded over the t over time? You know, it's like oh, you've sure. got this uh, you know creature right with bolts in his neck and a square head. Yeah, it's so it could not be further from you know how it's sort of you know described and portrayed in in the book. It's 
That's so interesting. And, uh, and, and the, the gist of, of these things becomes so ingrained in our culture. I remember reading um, Dr. Hecklin, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and, you know, thinking, wait, you don't know they're the same person? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> what? That, and, and always feeling like it was sort of anticlimactic because um, we all know that already, right? Yeah. But the people who read that for the first time right. didn't know that. Yeah. That was a big twist. Yeah. That was an M. Night yeah. Shyamalan kind of a moment, right. I think, for those people. Oh, this is going to work out great for Romeo and Juliet. <laughs> yeah, their families don't like it. But... <laughs> right, right. Exactly. What? Exactly. <laughs> sure. Okay. Uh, now we have finally gotten to the granddaddy of all questions, the most controversial of the uh, uh, lightning round questions. Do you have any poetry committed to memory? Well, you know, Shakespeare is generally considered poetry. Oh, so yes. uh, that is where uh, I have probably more than most because I have been studying Shakespeare almost as long as any, maybe as long as any other writer that I can say I've studied. Um, and it's really funny. I that now I'm just remembering that in fifth grade we were all required to learn uh, like seventy-five lines of poetry mm -hmm. or hundred lines sure. commit committed to memory. And uh, I believe Shakespeare's soliloquy, uh, "To be or not to be," was mm. what I did in fifth grade. I have no idea. I don't think I knew of any Shakespeare plays before that, except by cultural reference. Um, Bugs Bunny cartoons. Uh, <laughs> so, do you know the "To be or not to be" speech? I still know the "To be or oh, not to well, be" speech. Oh well, we must hear that. most of it. To be or not to be—that is the question. Whether tis nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune or take arms against a sea of troubles and by opposing in them to die, to sleep, to sleep. Aye, there's the rub, for in that sleep of death what dreams may come must give us pause. I skipped a line. Perchance to dream, but yeah, perchance to dream. But uh, that's beautiful that's as far as I can get right now. That is I marvelous. Love it. I love marvelous. It. Love it. Robert, this has been a joy. Thank you. Thank it's been you. a joy for me too. Yes, we must have you back. I I feel like I had a question I wanted to ask you about Bradbury and I cannot remember what it was. So much more to talk about. Yeah. Um uh, there's you know, there we could we could just talk about for oh. so long his you know his other weird life experiences like um, in his 20s being invited by John Houston who was making a film of Moby Dick mm. to Houston's Irish estate to write the screenplay oh. and what a bizarre experience <laughs> that was and he wrote a book about it he it's did? also been discussed by What's many it called? people it's called uh, green water white whale. Huh. Wow. And it's funny and bizarre and John Houston comes off as 
bizarre and <laughs> megalomaniacal as like. you can expect. I do remember what I was going to... It was not a question, though. Was, I just wanted to get your reaction. I don't know if you've heard this, but I came across something shortly before Bradbury died a few years ago. Uh, something that he said that absolutely blew my mind. Mm. And I, I was asking myself, is he serious? He said, Fahrenheit 451 is not a book about censorship in any way. It is only a book about how people don't read the way they used to and how they really ought to read more. <laughs> um, <laughs> I do know that in his later years, he became one of those people who sometimes says things that <laughs> seem a little, do you really want to get by saying that? And, you know, it's hard to know if that's something he truly believed. He may have believed it in that moment, but whether he yeah. would have said it 20 or 30 or, you know, however many years it was before he wrote that book, I don't know. I... I'm not going to put any stock in that yeah. except, well... Well, it, it is an interesting uh, conversation, I think, um, maybe for another time, that the idea that our, <laughs> our artists qualified to um, tell us what their work is about. Mm. Are, they, are they always qualified, you know? I, I think that's debatable. I think it's worth sticking away from that, staying mm. away from that. <laughs> that, yeah. that particular line? Or that no, it's a, it's a, no, I think... I think you know, any artist who is that, or author, who is that eager to tell you what their work means, mm. definitely should keep their pie hole shut. <laughs> okay. Although in this okay. case, I mean, he, in, theoretically, let's say that he really always meant the book to be about how people should read more or something like that, or don't read anymore. Uh, you can imagine why he would want to say, this is what the book meant, because... His entire life, everyone around him has been talking about how the book is about censorship. But you can imagine that's a kind of a scary scenario in a way, too. Is you imagine who wrote a book and everyone <laughs> is going around talking about what a great book it was, but they have no idea what it was about, at least from your point of view, and they're completely wrong. And you're going around telling people, and they're like laughing. <laughs> they're like, you're crazy. That's not what your book is about at all. You know, I'm sorry. To me, that sounds like Stephen King saying, I, I only wrote it to tell people that clowns are scary and they should be abolished. Sure, sure. Mm -hmm. right. Yeah, yeah. It's, no, yeah. It's, it's very yeah. odd. All right. Thank you, Robert Ferris. Thank you so much, LB. Brilliant, brilliant time having you here. Yes, Thank fantastic. You, Thank you for listening. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, go to our website, pov-publishing.com. Read our books. Listen to our other podcasts. Read, read, read. Talk, talk, talk. Read Something Wicked This Way Comes and other works by Ray Bradbury. Read like Ray Bradbury wants you to read. <laughs> read the Austin Chronicle and the art section. A lot section. and well. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>